Hello, Village. You're listening to Heal, Grow, Thrive, the podcast hosted by Forward Promise. If you don't know us, we're social change advocates focused on reclaiming the humanity of boys and young men of color and supporting the villages that nurture them. In our podcast, we'll talk with direct service practitioners, young people, researchers, and leaders in philanthropy, offering a deeper understanding of both the issues facing boys and young men of color and quality solutions for their healing, growing, and thriving. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to an important episode in our series, highlighting the voices of our grantees, fellows, and other stakeholders, and how they are pivoting their work in the face of this COVID-19 outbreak. We work with some phenomenal people who are fully committed to ensuring that boys and young men of color and their villages successfully emerge on the other side of this. This pandemic is exposing the disproportionate struggle faced by communities of color that is and always has been rooted in a history of dehumanization, racism, and colonization. These factors make boys and young men of color and their villages more vulnerable to illness, violence, and financial ruin. So we're dedicating these first episodes to sharing the issues and the solutions they've developed. We invite you to be thinking about, sharing, and doing what you can to ensure that boys and young men of color heal, grow, and thrive, both during this crisis and beyond. Like many of you watching, the Forward Promise Village of grantees, fellows, and NAC members have pivoted in these past few weeks to respond to the rapidly unfolding multifaceted crises created by the COVID-19 pandemic. Our most vulnerable communities and populations have been hard hit by this crisis, and we wanted to know and talk to those who directly serve them about how their work is being impacted and how they are responding. Today we have with us Tichelle Bordere, a Forward Promise Leadership Fellow serving currently as an assistant professor in the Human Development and Family Science and State Extension Specialist uh, in Youth Development at the University of Missouri, Columbia. She conducts research and specializes in youth development, dying, loss, and bereavement, and African-American children, youth, and families. Her participatory action research and programming areas are focused on Black male youth and family grief, survival, and resilience due to historical and contemporary race-based trauma and sudden violent losses. Thank you, Tichelle, for being here. Sure. And uh, my name is Howard Stevenson, and I'm the co-director of Forward Promise. So, um, Dr. Bordere, uh, questions I have for you, and thank you for taking this time, is one, one of the biggest questions we have is how, um, in some respects, uh, what impact has the COVID-19 pandemic had on the community and populations that you uh, or your organization serves? Yeah, sure. Um, the COVID pan pandemic has really um, profoundly and differentially uh, impacted Black communities. The pre-existing health disparities have uh, created our vulnerability to uh, loss and uh, the number of, we're dealing with really um, multiple death losses in single and in, in individual families. And then the death losses within Black communities, well, we see that there's a great disparity in the number of just uh, among the people impacted by COVID, the number of Black people impacted uh, in terms of uh, having the virus and then dying as a result of the virus um, 
uh, again, it's disproportionate to the general population, like 60%. That number may have changed, so don't quote me on that. Uh, but it's a, it's a significant number of deaths that we're experiencing. Right. Well, it, your area of research obviously fits uh, for this discussion. You spent your career studying grief. Um, mm -hmm. How would you define grief and acknowledge it uh, during such a unique crisis as this pandemic? Yes. Well, we are. Uh, grief is a response to really anything that we are attached to or that we believe is significant. So really, um, we may grieve things that are related to death losses and then uh, also non-death losses. Black families have really a history grounded in loss in, in terms of slavery, the sudden losses. Like we're not strangers to, to a lot of uh, uh, really disparaging losses. Uh, death and non-death, from property to credit for our discoveries and things like that. So we we actually are dealing with grief on many different levels, uh, both death and non-death losses. And so right now, um, and then also Black families are very communal. So we are we are also grieving. Um, triggers for us right now amid COVID um, are also just the large number of Black deaths that we're seeing just as a population. Like we're collectively, we're grieving our individual losses the threat of the losses of our cared about persons who are even in the healthcare system, right? So there's anticipatory grief around the potential for those losses, the potential for us even having to go to a hospital and interface with and trust the health community to care for our care to our loved ones. But then also the uh, losses that we're experiencing again uh, amid COVID. So keep in mind because we have, mm -hmm. um, so grief is our response to, to losses and grief is expressed in a myriad of ways from, you know, the basic sadness, the tears, to actually much more frequently we might see in Black communities because of all of the, the factors that really make our losses even more complex, right? We don't have most of our loss, we're grieving losses often that are sudden, disenfranchised losses that have stigma tied to it. Um, and so the way we have to, the way we grieve is quite complex. So for example, right now we're dealing with COVID a lot of my research has been in New Orleans, and they're also dealing with, we're dealing with deaths uh, due to COVID. We're also dealing with deaths due to homicide. We're still seeing mm -hmm. a disproportion of our community in, in prison systems, oftentimes innocent, but they're right. And so we're, we're dealing with just multiple different types of losses all at the same time uh, that often go unrecognized in our communities. Um, a major form of expression for us, and that's very justifiable, um, yeah. it just feelings of anger, <laughs> you know, um, when you have, um, you know, anger about how people are going to even feel about our losses, you know, that our losses will, will count and matter for people. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of processes in place to help us. Like we're also very strong. We're also very good at trying to find ways to survive, um, uh, in communities that really are not designed uh, in institutions that are not designed to promote our survival or give us safe places to grieve. Uh, yeah. So just a lot of things going on right now that might uh, add complexities to our very normal reactions to all of the complexities that uh, occur as we're trying to grieve in very normal ways. It's just, it's very hard for us. I, the, what we know about uh, research with Black families uh, and individuals is that our grief tends to be more prolonged because we don't just get to go to a funeral. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, there are a lot of complexities right now with that with COVID, but sure. we have these just everyday losses that occur for us that are often just mm -hmm. non-death that just collectively you know, impact us, our ability to, to function every day. 
Well, I mean, that's what I wanted to ask you. Thank you for sharing that. It's, and the more you talk about it, it gets more complex, um, even to the point where, you know, do you think um, black and brown folks are struggling also because we don't always identify grief as an issue? And uh, what experiences have you had around that? And then if you could talk a little bit more about how racism might play a role in, in this. Oh, absolutely. Um, because, you know, it's been very difficult. And I have to, if you don't mind, go back just to slavery for one moment. <laughs> it's not the only mm -hmm. thing that defines Absolutely. us, but really is, um, we have very, I want to say, first of all, we have very, we have a lot of very healthy coping mechanisms using our spirituality, um, our sense of community, putting our, our thought, you know, going back to our ancestors and how they've coped with things. Um, but really, and in, in, in even in that point, if I might point that out as because we can never just look at today, as you know, right? We always have to look at like what has led to the mechanisms we're still using, right? Some that have survival functions and some that don't serve us. <laughs> so, you know, if you think about it uh, during, you know, um, mm -hmm. slavery, for example, there was not a lot of space to grieve. You know, grief is defined as things like being distracted, you know, um, crying, being angry, working more, working less, sleeping more sleeping less so grief can be just we express express grief in a lot of different ways but if you imagine we dealt with a lot of different things like having your child be ambiguously you know taken from you once they became a teenager so we're not new to that either right the loss mm -hmm. of our kids and adolescents um yeah. you know a lot of ambiguity about what was going to happen to us from day to day whether we would stay together or be pulled apart sold uh and so um that you know, uh, additional layer of oppression impacted, you know, made us realize. Well, a coping mechanism at that point that we still use is this idea that we have to push on, <laughs> like yeah. you have to press on. So, for example, there was no time to sit back and grieve. Really, at that point, you know, being distracted could mean you'd be beaten or killed that day. And so, yeah. quite frankly, in current in, in contemporary society, there's still not a lot of space for us to. To have the grief is a leisure, is a leisure, right? It's a luxury. It's a, yeah. actually a very privileged thing <laughs> that is yeah. really not afforded to to black and brown populations, and so, so um, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so, and but, so the idea of managing grief is a luxury. It is really it, is having the time and having the resources to manage grief is as a is a luxury is a very important thing. How, how do you think about? You know, I was reading about just what you were saying, you know, about the fifth little girl, the sister of uh, Addie Mae, um, who was one of the four little girls bombed in the, in the Birmingham church um, that people don't talk about. But she lost an eye. She lost um, and she had shrapnel in her, in her upper body uh, for her entire life. And, it, and, and her church didn't talk about the incident because they were afraid of retaliation uh, from the KKK. But I often thought about this. I've often made the comment that sometimes our community has, we've sacrificed healing for the sake of survival. And I know you have a concept called suffocated grief. And I don't know if you could explain that to us. Uh, uh, how does that fit into both the notion of luxury, but also sacrificing healing uh, yeah. in a way? Yeah. Um, well, suffocated grief, what I've come across in my research, uh, largely with youth populations, um, so adolescents and then also young adult populations, so populations who are able to maintain their, um, you know, their you know, extend their educational processes to, to, to higher education, 
Um, and really, they're still the same link, right? Um, black youth, and we know this through the uh, suspension rates and, you know, uh, again, disproportionate ways in which brown and black youth are expelled and suspended, again, for very normal behaviors. So what I was finding was, so disenfranchised grief is, is the notion that, um, and Doka came up with that concept, um, and it's the idea that um, certain losses are not acknowledged, both by privileged entities, but also within uh, marginalized populations too, just for different reasons, right? Uh, for racism versus survival <laughs> functions. Yeah. Uh, and so suffocated grief is the idea that um, certain populations get differentially punished or penalized for their normal grief reactions. So it's, it's one thing for a person to not acknowledge you've had a loss, right? Or acknowledge sure. you have scrap metal in your body or you don't have an eye. Uh, suffocated grief is the idea that you also get penalized if you cry about it. You get penalized mm -hmm. if you're mad about it. You're gonna get punished. You're gonna get sent to the safe seat. You're gonna miss math and science today, or you're gonna be expelled from school. So I have college mm -hmm. students who won't even tell their professors or ask for things, um, and I'm seeing it right now, actually, uh, even as a professor with my students who are differentially really ask for support because of the fear of being stigmatized if they say I had a homicide loss or my grandmother. Yes. We, we're much more likely to go back to press on, push forward. Yeah, mm -hmm. so yeah that ties in. Uh, and then race-based trauma is ongoing. <laughs> you know, that's an everyday loss, loss of time, loss of energy. So again, loss is not just the, uh, you know, the death, because that's huge in and of itself. But what, what people don't often understand is people cope better when they can name their experiences. And so sometimes it's also oppressive to us when we can't just pause and say, no, this thing happened. It's, it's actually yes. central to our mental health to acknowledge you want to press on but you also yeah. give it's important for our healing to take moments to say no this thing happened because we already live in a broader context where people will say it didn't happen so we can't do that as well we have to say this thing happened here's how we functioned in the past mm -hmm. this will be our plan for moving forward but we we get we have the right to to heal this thing did happen and so trying to it's a challenge right it's 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 not it's not easy um, yeah. But trying to find a way for that to happen still is central to our health, right? Well, you're talking a lot about trauma. We know in trauma work in general, one of the tragedies of trauma is keeping secrets or not being able to share. And that's one of the reasons we've been pushing storytelling in our work and in our support of, of funder uh, grantees like yourself and fellows like yourself, that uh, the just the ability to be able to tell their story can be part of the yes. healing process. Yes. And as well as what you're saying, blocking that storytelling is also traumatic, tra re-traumatizing. Um, I understand you've had a personal experience with this pandemic in a way. That, do you mind sharing with us some of that? Sure, absolutely. Um, so, um, you know, a significant portion of our population, unfortunately, uh, in terms of the representation of deaths, COVID deaths um, and losses, uh, my brother was, um, my older brother, um, was impacted by COVID, uh, and he, like a lot of people, uh, uh, did improved and then showed this sharp decline, um, was transitioned to a ventilator, like in the middle of the night, one night we get a call, um, he was on a ventilator for, for over a week, um, where we really waited moment by moment for a random call, we were, um, like a lot of people separated from our, from, we didn't get to see him, um, he was in hospital about a month total, uh, we didn't, we weren't able to really see him while he was, or be near him, all the things that you do when you're trying to support your cared about person. Yes. Uh, extremely difficult, right? Um, just really extremely difficult. 
uh, and trying to navigate a space in a system in which we have justifiable mistrust. You know, my mind was plagued. I, I was his principal caregiver, so I had a lot of communication because my background is social justice issues and also bereavement and loss. I had a a special investment. And I feel like I was. I have a lot of knowledge about what could happen, whether I could trust. You know, Louisiana is a southern. Well, I don't know if that's a, you know it's a southern state like many, where we have to be very honest that it's race conscious, sex conscious, all of those types of things. So I was very and there's also research about the disparities in healthcare provision. So I was very keenly aware of that this whole time. Um, yeah. In fact, my last discussion with one of the healthcare workers was, "You are aware of the disparities." <laughs> like I had to have like real yeah. conversations about expressing why I actually have a fear about yeah. next steps for him. Every step of the way, I had fears. Um, I might. I want to share this one thing really quickly about it. Um, sure. You know, again, even there's just this extra layer. So while we were dealing with all of the really trauma and stress and even anticipatory grief from day to day about what each phone call would entail. We yes. didn't know every time the phone rang, I felt I was just glued to my phone every day. Um, it's really the only phone call I would accept, quite frankly, for at least a couple of weeks because it, I, I just, I was consumed with what that call would entail. Um, so when I spoke to, um, so while he was there, um, I was concerned about things that you shouldn't have to be like, will they will we get a ventilator, you know, as a black male? Yeah. We already know there's a yeah. shortage. Are they going to pick between him and somebody else? You know, um, will he would it value his life? Would he understand he matters? So quite frankly, mm -hmm. I was doing things that you shouldn't have to do. I was, you know, saying like um, um, in addition to holding him accountable, I would have to dis I was describing him like, you know, he's a really good guy you know, trying sure. to help them understand he's ultimately sure. that he's worth getting the ventilator, you know, things that other people may not have had to do. Um, yeah. Also, they, when he uh, he experienced delirium afterwards, um, like a lot of populations do, usually families mm -hmm. being at the bedside helps with that, but yes. we weren't there um, to help him feel more centered. And so when they called me, they just described him as combative. And I huh. thought, you know, yeah. again, are you differentially... <laughs> You know, I couldn't help, but because I noticed that in the perceptions of black males and, and yes. young black males, and I was really disturbed by that description. And in fact, I had, you know, at a, my own time of stress and trauma, and, you know, this is also sudden and mysterious illness, um, make sure that they were aware of my concern about the way they were describing him and that I prefer if they couple it with delirium, that they understood he was combative or whatever it was, but make sure you understand is grounded in delirium because once again, he's a nice guy. So even yeah. that type of language was really scary for me. You know, uh, would they be more likely to strap him down because he's a black male, you know? Right. Would his combativeness be defined differently from somebody else who's... Dick so it was just, sure. it was a process. Which, um, might, which might exacerbate his anxiety and stress and, and make it worse, as you can imagine. The idea that you have to, to, to share a preemptive racial affirmation framing yes. so that they don't see him in a particular light and and then keep him withhold you know uh health care from him in this time is amazingly stressful thinking about it from my distance from you but you having to and your family having to go through that and the, and the grief that's connected to that so um it's very powerful how are you doing and how is he doing in this point in time? 
Um, he is, um, he was actually released from the hospital last night, yesterday evening. Wow. Um, again, even that was kind of a battle because they, they were trying to get him mm. out of there without rehabilitation, which I've read mm. about that people do need. He has experienced trauma. In fact, he's described in my first conversation with him where he could speak, could actually say words. And it's been a long process. It will continue to be a process for him still learning to walk. And I mean, COVID has really taken a um, taking a toll on people. It's still very mysterious about how they, what their outcomes will be ultimately. Um, yeah. So he's still learning to walk and is just now eating food, you know, foods. And, sure. uh, it's a process. Um, but his first conversation with me was when he could speak was how traumatizing this was, how he felt during this period of delirium, really, that he felt mm. like he was being treated like an animal. He felt like yeah. an animal. He woke up to being strapped down. So it's just Again, the differential meaning of that in bl for black people, brown and black people, then other people might derive from that same idea of being strapped down, like that extra layer for us. Um, yeah, if I might I, say one other thing that I think is sure. really central, um, just for healing processes for for black populations, again, my heart and soul am, is in is just really around strong advocacy for how we can still do our grief. Uh, in a culture in which we are disenfranchised and where we might get punished, but how we can still overcome that barrier to get what we need. Uh, and yeah. right now with, with funerals and things like that around COVID, a lot of our healing practices are being disrupted like everybody else. So some yeah. of our, the things we've been able to turn to, you know, these, these gatherings together, um, even in New Orleans, they tried to continue with one of the rituals. We tend to do a second line and they were arrested. So there's the kind of suffocated grief, although it's justifiable that they were, they shouldn't have been out there legally. Um, sure. So um, our ability is to still rely on a lot of our practices that were even more central to us. Having a minister there is being disrupted now. Um, again, we rely on our faith a lot. So I think we will have to be very creative and how mm -hmm. and ways that we still get some of these needs met so again one huge thing if i can't emphasize enough is that we within our own communities actually it's okay to say we're not okay yeah. <laughs> you know it's yeah. not we don't always need to press on an empty sack can't yeah. stand so i'm you know and i find this even in in a lot of communities again who even study trauma it's like it, grief is okay loss is okay like we have to be okay with those terms um, and, and not make our own losses be invisible as oppressive to ourselves. So to help ourselves acknowledging it, naming yes. it, and also people who, are, who grieve, continuing with storytelling, extremely yes. important. We can still do that online, create an yes. online Zoom community, and you can still tell these stories. These stories have sustained us throughout our history and they will continue to sustain us um, and continue to find ways yes. to avoid physical isolation, because we don't have to be socially isolated. The word is, we should, is really, we're more physically than socially, and we can overcome that through technology, phone call. Yeah, I, I would say when you were saying loss, um, it's, it's, it's in many respects, um, the grieving our loss is absolutely okay. And, yes. and storytelling is absolutely important. The, the Proverbs lion story will never be known as long as the hunter is the one to tell it. And I think yes. about how powerful that you had a voice for your your brother, your loved one. But there are so many families of color who don't have the questions to ask to protect their loved ones in care. But this has been very powerful. Thank you for sharing your story.
and thank you for giving us more knowledge about this issue of grief and and protecting our families. So um, I wish you the best and take care of yourself, Dr. Bader. Thank you so much, Dr. Stevenson. You take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Heal, Grow, Thrive, the podcast. We hope these conversations prompt a deeper commitment to action in the field and in philanthropy to create a society that is fair and equitable for all. For more information about Forward Promise, visit forwardpromise.org or follow us on social media. We're simply Forward Promise on Facebook and at forward underscore promise on Twitter and Instagram.